So today is the beginning, the very first Sunday in a season in the church called Advent. Advent. And we're following a 1,500-year-old tradition this Sunday and next. We're spending two weeks focusing on, in on a peculiar and unusual character named John the Baptist. This is one of those times of the year when I'm reminded just how weird Christianity is. The Christian gospel is radically different from anything else you're going to find in our surrounding culture. Uh, And I've been toying with this idea of what I'm going to call the Macy's test uh, in order to figure out if something fits into the surrounding culture or if it's very out of place. Uh, Who watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year? I consistently am finding that I'm like one of only a couple of people who actually watched this thing. But this year I sat down and I watched it. Uh, I promise you, it was purely a sociological experiment. I really didn't enjoy any of it. But I'm kidding. Um, For all those of you who did watch it, I'm just joking. But I watched this thing and the test would work like this. Uh, If a particular person or a particular activity makes sense in the parade... Uh, then it's probably culturally acceptable. You could also uh, offer a substitute, right? Um, If it makes sense outside of your local Macy's, uh, then it's probably culturally acceptable. So uh, Lady Gaga, good? Yeah, she does great in the parade. She's always in. Uh, Broadway shows, absolutely. Uh, Marching bands, check. Santa, He's a staple, right? He's like the pinnacle of the Macy's Day Parade. Uh, And he's pretty much everything that we value here in America this time of year. He's super wealthy. He has his own mansion up in the North Pole and all kinds of minions who do his biddings. Um, He's always happy. He reassures us that no matter what, despite all the evidence to the contrary, this really is the most wonderful time of the year. Smile. Uh, He's super productive, right? He doesn't sleep, and he delivers presents to the whole world in a single night. That's like everything we value as hardworking Americans. Um, and he bids you to buy, to buy stuff uh, that another trinket is going to make you happier, or it's going to bring the joy and satisfaction to your heart. And he also educates our kids in the heresy of Pelagianism and teaches them that uh, good things come to those who are good and work hard. That's a different sermon for a different time. But then there's another figure that doesn't quite fit into the Macy's parade. Uh, imagine him for a second. Uh, according to Matthew's gospel, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Sounds like Santa. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Doesn't sound like Santa. Take that image and put it up on a float going down 6th Avenue in New York City. And he's standing up there going, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This image I can't get out of my mind because it's literally the most punk rock thing I can possibly think of. But security would be called, right? Does John pass the Macy's Day test? Not so much. He doesn't fit in. He's like the inverse of our cultural idea of Santa. John the Baptist is radically countercultural. Um, and so it seems like we're just being contrarian by studying John the Baptist right now, right at this time when we're supposed to be into all the Christmas magic and stuff. 
But there's a reason why Christians have focused on this particular person at this particular time for nearly 1,500 years. And that's because Christmas is coming, and it's not about what you think it's about. Uh, In about a month, we will celebrate Christ's first coming, his uh, primus adventus in Latin. Say that with me. Primus adventus. Uh, And this reminds us that since he came once, he also promised that there will be a secundus adventus. Right? What do you think that means? His second coming. Uh, As we say in the creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so this is a really good time to pause, hit pause on all of our activities and aspirations and say, am I ready for that? If Christ comes back this very hour, will you be prepared? On January 15, 2009, U.S. Flight 1549 hit a flock of birds as it was taking off from New York's LaGuardia Airport. And uh, the birds got, I guess, sucked into the jet engine, which is kind of gruesome, but it caused engine failure on all engines. And you guys were probably alive and know the story. Um, the pilots managed to steer this plane down and land it in the Hudson River. It was quite miraculous. But I remember reading an article uh, after that uh, from one of the passengers, and they talked about what happened in the cabin as everyone knew that the plane was going down. And you know what they did? Everybody started praying. It's like we have this built-in, deeply laden mechanism that knows on some level I will meet my maker someday it could be today I will meet my maker are you ready it's a serious question and I think that John the Baptist is especially useful for this Um, his whole ministry was centered around this one goal to prepare people to meet Christ And that's why we need to take a fresh look at John and listen to what he has to say, because I think he can actually help us to prepare as well. So this morning we get to hit the pause button on our life and ask, am I ready? Uh, And I want to take a brief look at John's ministry. We'll go more into the weeds of it next week. Uh, But this morning I want to look at specifically the historical moment in which he lived, his mission in life, it was given to him by God, And his message, his moment, his mission, and his message. Can you tell that I grew up Presbyterian? So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. And as you turn, remember, John is a bewildering character, but uh, he was massively popular in his day. He was not just some freak out in the desert. Uh, Great crowds, all of Jerusalem and all the region around Judea, uh, Luke's, or Matthew says, went out to see him. Um, He was very popular. And so as we walk through this text, Luke chapter 3, verse 1, I have two questions I want you to ask. Number one, why? Why were so many people going out to John? And number two, would I? Would I have made the pilgrimage to go out and see this guy? Would I have found myself in the waters of the Jordan River? Would I have accepted what he has to say? Why and would I? Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Historians know that the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was approximately A.D. 28. So if we're trying to fix the date, we don't need anything more than that first clause in verse 1. But the other verses are still there, right? And that's because they tell us something important. They give us a sense of John's historical moment, not just the numerical year, but what was going on. And we see that it was characterized by slavery, silence, and compromise for God's people. Look at the names again. Tiberius, right? Who was he? He's the Roman Empire emperor. Uh, this was a man who was noted for being moody and cruel, like many of the Roman emperors. Uh, in AD 19, I believe, he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, so he had a track record with those particular people. Pontius Pilate was his underling. He was the governor or prefect of Judea, not governor like Tom, uh, whatever his name is, is our governor. Um, does anyone remember our governor's name? I just Tom Wolf, thank you. Goodness gracious. I'll get an email of that, about that one on Monday. Um, he was not a governor like that. He was more like the army general uh, who was appointed to keep things in order, right? Not a democratically elected representative. And then we get these other names, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias, the Tetrarchs. These are people who were put in power by, say it together, Rome. Um, they were put in power by Rome. So the picture's clear. Judea was a Roman military state, complete with checkpoints and soldiers walking down the streets. The Jews were not a free people. They were ruled by godless people, just like they were in Egypt for 430 years, just like what they were in Babylon. And the biblical writers understood this to be a kind of slavery. They were not able to rule themselves. They were enslaved. And amid all of this, God seemed to be silent. Uh, the last book of the Old Testament is called Malachi, not Malachi, please. Um, and it ends with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's how the Old Testament ends. That was around somewhere between 515 B.C. and 450 B.C. Okay? So to put it in our frame of reference, you're in the 1600s. That's the last time you heard anything. And in that time, in that time of silence, Israel was repeatedly conquered, first by Alexander the Great's army. The Seleucid Empire is what it was called. That was in 323 B.C., uh, and then, after a couple hundred years of that, the people rose up under Judas Maccabeus, and they won their independence in 167 B.C. That's what Hanukkah is all about. Um, but that was short-lived, and then they had about 100 years of autonomous rule, and then in 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey laid siege to Jerusalem and captured it, and Israel became a colony of Rome. 
once again enslaved to a foreign power. And all through this, what do you hear about this Elijah character coming to, the, to turn hearts to the fathers to their children and children to the fathers? Nothing. Nothing. Nunca. Nadie. Silence. Where is God? Did he, did he forget about us? Have you ever wondered that question in your own life? In the midst of this, the Jews increasingly found that they had to compromise with Rome in order to survive. Roman occupation brought uh, Roman architecture, Roman coins, Roman food, Roman dress, Roman worship, Roman values. Uh, Look at these two names, Caiaphas and Annas. These are the two heads of the Jewish temple complex. These are the chief religious officers. Um, Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law, was sort of the retired high priest. Uh, But he's one of those guys who just kind of like kept clinging on and hanging out and didn't really want to let go of the reins. So he wasn't technically the high priest, but he was like the Emperor Emperor Palpatine to Caiaphas' Darth Vader, right? He was behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings and controlling everything. Um, Caiaphas and Annas. And these were people who were so vested in retaining their power and maintaining the status quo that they were willing to make all kinds of compromises with the Roman authorities. So, for example, once they allowed Pilate to help himself to the temple temple treasury so that he could build an aqueduct. So this godless man enters into God's temple and steals money from God... And what do his representatives do? Nothing. They were good politicians. They were lousy priests. And good politicians tend to make lousy priests. So by John's time, many devout Jews had just given up on the temple. You have groups um, who are going out and living in these desert communities and trying to maintain faithfulness all all without the temple, because they said it really can't remove sin anymore. All these sacrifices for atonement aren't working because it's so corrupted. Now, I know that we live in a vastly different cultural and political situation than these people did. The United States is not Rome. Christianity is not first century Judaism. And the church is not the Jerusalem temple. I just have to say that, right? But at the same time, I think many of us can relate. We understand slavery, right? We understand slavery. We understand slavery to algorithms that are designed to captivate our attention at all costs in order to sell us something. Most Americans at this point know what slavery feels like. Uh, Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. We're used to compromise religious institutions, from the Catholic Church to Mars Hill in Seattle and everything in between. We're used to seeing religious leaders who turn out to say one thing in the pulpit and then live one thing when they get down out of it. And maybe you've been waiting for God to speak to you for years. Maybe you've given up on Christianity or almost given up because it seems like When you go to pray, there's a steel curtain of silence, and nothing comes through. So, we get it. 
But God sent John to break the silence in his particular day. And maybe he can break it for us too. Now a word about his mission. Look at verse 4 with me, if you still have your Bibles open. Verse 4. These are the words of Isaiah the prophet. And if John has a mission statement, this is it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I need to ask your indulgence to let me nerd out again real quick. Uh, okay, so if this is, if my hand here is Israel, right, and my thumb is right where Jerusalem is, and the Jordan River is coming down south through here, right? Um, the Jews were, in 586 BC, were deported all the way over here, atop, across the top of the Arabian Desert, to a place called Babylon, all right? And now the journey home from Babylon takes about four months. And in 323 BC, uh, Cyrus the Great issued the edict, edict, I'm sorry, not 323, 531 BC. Uh, he issued the Edict of Restoration and sent the Jews home. He said, you can return to your home, homeland. You can make that four-month journey. Now, as you're entering into Jerusalem from the east... You've got to cross the Jordan River and this region around the Jordan River. And it's a wilderness. It's full of hills. It's full of boulders and valleys and little caverns where thieves can hide out and rob you. And so coming home is actually very dangerous because you have to cross the wilderness to get there. But God says to, the, to his people, says, I won't let anything stand in your way. I will bring you out of exile even if I have to be the bulldozer to make a highway for you. That's what every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. That's what that means. It's referring to the geography to the east of Jerusalem in the wilderness around the Jordan. It's lost on us today, but it was not to its original audience. So, fast forward about 600 years to John's time. God's people are in a kind of exile in their own homeland. Their moment is characterized by slavery and compromise and silence. And John sees that the people need to do more than just cross a bunch of mountains and hills to get home. Anybody who's gone home for Thanksgiving and found that it's not quite the same as they left it knows that being physically home is not the same thing as really being home. It's harder than that. So what does John do? He sends a message. He goes out to that wilderness around the Jordan, the one that the Babylonian exiles coming home were so afraid of, and he preaches right there. I've heard a lot of people say that John's location was not strategic, that he was a fool for going out in the wilderness. Uh Uh-uh. He knew exactly what he was doing. The location was part of the message. It was the symbol Israel, you are exiles in your own land, and it's time to come home. Remember the mountains? Remember the valleys? All of that? Well, guess what? You have a bigger obstacle than your ancestors did. And it's not a mountain. It's not a valley. It's not a robber hiding in a cave. It's not your religious institutions. It's your own hard, unrepentant heart. So John's mission is to build a highway through the wilderness of the human heart heart, to clear the way for the one who's to come. 
And before we move on to our last point, I want to invite you to pause and ask if your own heart is hard. Is there a mountain range of resentment and pride and shame and fear standing between you and a relationship with ultimacy? If so, it's time to come home. And John tells us how. On a basic level, his message is quite simple. Look at verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. First, baptism. The word there is baptizo. Say that with me. Baptizo. It means to dip, immerse, sink, drown, bathe, or wash. Get the picture? John took, people went down into the river, and John dipped them, immersed them, sunk them. I'm not sure he drowned them, uh, but he bathed them and washed them in the river. There's images of death. There's images of cleaning. There's images of being uh, wholly immersed. There's even images of passing through the Red Sea as Israel's egg, as the Exodus people went through the Red Sea. Um, John invited people to be dunked as an outward physical sign of something inward that was happening in their own souls, a kind of transformation that he called repentance. The word there is metanoia. Say that with me. Metanoia. Good. It means to change one's mind, to change your opinions, feelings, or purpose. Simply to say, I've been wrong. I've been thinking wrongly, and my mind needs to change. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, your own best thinking got you here. In order to get out, you need to change your mind. So baptism wasn't just a ceremony. It signified something, and it signified a change in a person's fundamental orientation toward God and the world. And the purpose, all of this, this baptism of repentance, was for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it existed for. You were baptized and you repented so that you could receive the forgiveness of sins. John had what some people call a low anthropology. He understood that the most fundamental human problem is not external, but internal. So your problem is not that your extended family uh, is all backwards and has the wrong views and has all kinds of sins and doesn't seem to get you. Your fundamental problem is not that your boss doesn't adequately recognize your unique contributions and gifts and talents and agree with all the great ideas that you have. It's not that there aren't enough mature Christians in your community for you to be able to grow. It's actually not your circumstance or environment at all. Your most fundamental problem is you. That's what John says. That you need to repent. That you have a twisted heart. And you actually have, in this short time on this planet, amassed a record of guilt that needs to be expunged. So John says, you're worse than you think. That's a message we don't get in 
in America very often. That's a, not a very Christmassy message, is it? Doesn't fit in the Macy's Day Parade. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But John says, you are, so turn back. Rethink your life, and maybe by some miracle, when God comes, he will have mercy on you. Maybe you'll be given the grace to be able to pay back all that you've messed up. That's what John saw. But there's something I want to say that John didn't see. John understood that the axe was laid at the root of the trees. That God's people were going to be cut down for their hard, unrepentant hearts. And they needed to repent. But he didn't see that the one who he was proclaiming, the one who was to come, would himself come and not cut us down, but himself be cut down for us. John understood that people needed to turn their hearts to God, but he didn't quite grasp or see just how thoroughly and unflinchingly God had actually turned his heart toward his people. John focuses on our initiative, and that's great. We need to take responsibility. You need to take responsibility for your own life. But, but he didn't see that all of it, when you look back, is the initiative of a God who has a one-way love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to understand uh, that when we come to approach God, when we turn back, God so loved us, he so loved the world, that he bore our sins in his own body. There's no distance enough. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley wide enough. Wow, that just occurred to me. That really preaches. He came not to condemn us, but to save us. As in the words of Marcus Mumford, the leader, lead singer of Mumford and Sons, who I guess is not a cool band anymore, but um, it's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive at every start, right? It's not my drawn out process of penance that changes me, but it's actually the warm and smiling face that greets me when I turn. That's how people change. So back to my two questions. Why were people going out to this man? Because they were self-satisfied and smug? Because they thought I had it figured out? No. No one goes out to the desert for that. They went out because they were desperate. They were hungry and desperate, and they were just on the edge of giving up hope. And then the second question, would you? The question that Christianity presents to us is not, are you good enough? The question is, are you desperate? Are you low enough? Are you broken enough? Are you a shattered vessel? Have you made a wreck of your life? Do you recognize that tendency in yourself? Do you need grace? And if you are, if you are desperate, then I want to say that you're ready. That's the way that John the Baptist came to prepare. May we all walk in it. Amen.